The book of Acts and the gospel that bears his name was written by Luke. And there is a second century prologue to the third gospel that gives us a personal peek at its author. It reads, Luke was a Syrian from Antioch, a doctor by profession, a disciple of the apostles. Later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom. Serving the Lord blamelessly. He never had a wife. He never fathered children. And he died at the age of 84, full of the Holy Spirit. This should give everyone who's single great hope. For he never had a wife or kids, yet Luke lived a full life. He died full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the book of Acts is the story of how Jesus continued to do and teach through his spirit and his church. And Luke practiced what he preached. He took the Father's promise seriously, and he lived well into old age, filled with power from on high. You see, the early church wasn't a perfect church, but they did possess the key ingredients that all churches need. They had an overcoming joy. They believed in a truth worth dying for. They loved each other like family. And there was a supernatural quality to all their interactions. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, we're told Jesus blessed his first church with great grace and great power. Don't you want that? I do. Great grace and great power. This morning we'll study from chapter 2, verse 40, through chapter 4, verse 31. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. What a great start to a church plant. On the first day, 3,000 people were saved. But notice what they're saved from. You know, we usually conclude that we're saved from sin and its effects. But Peter has a broader view of salvation. Here he exhorts his listeners, be saved from this perverse generation. You know, there is a spirit in our world today from which we need to be saved. Humans are born sinners. Every generation is tainted by a perverse or a twisted nature. It displays itself in various ways, but rebellion and independence from God is the underlying theme. Peter saw salvation in Christ as a way to escape this sinful web, the web of this world, the worldwide web. He saw it as a way to get free. When I'm saved, I begin to unravel my life from a rebellious system that opposes God. I begin to live together with other believers under a higher ideal. And that society, that godly society, is called the church. Verse 42 outlines the activities of the early church. Here's what occupied the first Christians. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now notice, church and church life in the first century didn't involve committee meetings 
or political rallies or social clubs. My, Luke doesn't even mention softball leagues or Zumba classes or white watchers. Though I'm sure all of that has its place. No, life in the early church was about two things. It was simple and it was spiritual. You see, the church met around four activities. First, they delved into the scriptures. Notice they studied the apostles' doctrine. They taught. They studied the word of God. They were all Bible junkies. Second, they fellowshiped and they spent quality time with each other. The emphasis among them was about knowing and being known, loving and being loved. Then third, they broke bread together. That means they took communion or they worshiped God at the Lord's table and in other ways as well. And then fourth, they prayed. They learned to pray as one voice. Hey, believers that pray together, stay together. And here's the key. That's it. That, that's it. That was the agenda. The church calendar wasn't full of superfluous stuff. They were all about the big four. Word and worship, fellowship and prayer. When the early church met together, their agenda was always spiritual. Their church was all about God. What a novel idea. And notice the results of sticking to this agenda. Verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. These were serious Christians, and God validated their faith with wonders and signs. I believe when a church gets serious... God begins to work in supernatural ways. And there was great love among them as well. For now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now it's easy to talk about being a spiritual family, but the church in Acts put their money where their mouth was. They pulled their resources together to meet each other's needs. They functioned on the logic, if Jesus gave his all to me, then how can I not give my all to others? Some sociologists have referred to the early church as the first expression of communism, but not so. This was communism, not communism. See, communism is forced sharing. Resources are taken from the rich and given to the poor. Here they voluntarily combine their resources. The rich loved the poor and all gave freely to one another. And yet when you study the early church, though no one can question their motive, there may have been a better way to meet the needs over time than just pooling their wealth. Later in Acts, we'll find that a famine strikes Judea. And the Gentile churches are asked to collect an offering for the church in Jerusalem. Apparently, they weren't on solid enough financial footing to weather the storm. And it may have been because of their abandonment of personal property and ownership. Perhaps that crippled their ability to endure hardship. Remember, God never commands us to pool our resources, only to show love and generosity toward one another. Their communism affirm their love for each other, but it might not have been the best long-term strategy. Verse 46 tells us, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple 
and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, I've heard it put, a healthy church will be growing larger and smaller at the same time. And this was the dynamic combination that existed in the book of Acts. On the one hand, the believers enjoyed the excitement generated by a large meeting with lots of people. This occurred in the temple. But they also cultivated more intimate fellowship in small groups that met from house to house. It was the larger and smaller dynamic that combined for optimal spiritual growth. And this is what we try to do here at Calvary Chapel with our large group gathering on Sunday and our smaller gatherings throughout the week. See, it's both the electricity of the stadium, but also the intimacy of the huddle. And understand, both gatherings are needed if you're going to play the game. You got to have the stadium and you got to have the huddle. And notice the results of this combination. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord added. There was no striving on the part of the church. There were no big programs or pushes. It was a work of God's spirit. The Lord added to his church. And I believe when any church becomes a healthy church, God will add to that church. Well, chapter 3 begins. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, nine in the morning. Recall, Peter and John were Jews, and as were, as were all the first Christians, and it was Jewish custom to go up three times a day to pray if you live close to the temple. At 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m., devout Jews living in Jerusalem would follow this practice. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, he had been crippled since birth, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, the gate Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now, sadly, there wasn't any vocational training for the disabled in first century Jerusalem. So all a paralytic could do was beg. And each morning, this man's caregivers would put him on a stretcher. They would cart him over to the temple, and they would lay him out by this gate and let him beg all day long. And notice they placed him strategically by the gate beautiful. This was the entrance into the inner court, a high traffic spot. And just beyond the gate on the inside of the court, there were 13 offering boxes. Now, this beggar was smart. I mean, he was hoping to catch devout Jews with a few coins still in their hand. Verse 3 speaks of the lame man who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now realize this man was a professional beggar. He was as callous toward the people walking by as they were callous toward him. A beggar beggar never looked anyone in the eyes. His head would hang low. He was looking only for a pair of expensive sandals. And when he saw them, he'd shake his cup in their direction. 
And the worshipers were as oblivious to him as he was to them. Oh, they may drop a few coins in the cup from time to time, but they never locked eyes with one another. Never. But what was it that caused Peter to fix his eyes on this beggar? You know, maybe a dozen beggars were working the spot. Why lock on to him? You know, it was probably a mixture of things, of love, of the Holy Spirit's leading, of an openness, of the gift of faith. But whatever it was, Peter feels a tug in this crippled man's direction. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Earlier, Peter and John had sold their possessions with the others and had pooled their resources. They no longer had any silver and gold of their own. You know, the story's told of the Pope and Thomas Aquinas. One day, the Pope was counting his money. He was counting the money in the church coffers when Aquinas walked into the room. The Pope pointed to the cachet of treasure before him, and he said, Thomas, we can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas responded, yes, and neither can we say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's a sad indictment against the church when we substitute prosperity for power. When we put more of our trust in money than in miracles, no amount of money can buy what we need most. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 7, And he, that is Peter, took him, the lame man, by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. The original wording used by Dr. Luke implies that the man's ability to walk was due to severely dislocated ankles. And that's where this healing occurs In his feet and ankle bones. You know, whenever I read this passage, I'm always, I always marvel at Peter's faith. I mean, what possessed him? Well, the Holy Spirit possessed him. But I I mean, imagine reaching down, grabbing this man's right hand and lifting him up. Think of what's going through Peter's mind when he's doing this. What if he doesn't stand? What if his legs collapse? Boy, if this doesn't work, I'll be accused of humiliating a disabled person, a handicapped person right here in Jerusalem. I mean, can you imagine what's floating through his head? A thousand what ifs race through Peter's mind. And yet he felt the leading of the Holy Spirit so strongly that he refused to second guess himself. He took a risk to obey God. Spiritually speaking, Peter is walking on water again. But this time, he refuses to take his eyes off Jesus. You know, we all want to walk on water, don't we? We all want to participate in God's miracles. But friends, it takes faith. We've got to be willing to set aside our fear and muster some courage and step out when the Spirit nudges us. Peter grabbed the beggar's hand, and he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them. Walking, leaping, and praising God. Notice the completeness of the miracle. The man's ankles had been dislocated, then surely his leg muscles had atrophied from decades of immobilization. 
Normally, it would have taken weeks of physical therapy for him to regain his balance and the use of his legs. Yet just seconds after the miracle, this man is running and leaping all around the temple. What a sight it was. Apparently, Jesus is not just a great physician. He's also quite a physical therapist. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, and I like that, he'd been plagued by lame legs, but he sure wasn't a lame brain. Had some sense about him. Rather than run off in excitement, he held on to Peter and John. He realized that there was more that he could learn from these two men. Where had this power come from? You know, it's vital when God does a miracle in our lives that we hold on to it for a while. You know, often when God works in us, we revel in the results without realizing that a lesson comes attached. This man's legs had been healed, but his heart is still open. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Solomon's porch was the temple portico east of the beautiful gate. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? You know, quite a crowd is now gathering, and so Peter preaches. And how refreshing it is that he so quickly disavows any personal responsibility for the miracle. You know, Peter's earlier failures had humbled him now, right? He's no longer loitering in the limelight. He and the lame man won't be appearing on Christian TV that evening. There won't be a photo shoot for his next newsletter. In fact, Peter won't even start a healing ministry. This had nothing to do with him. Instead, he proclaims, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. You know, the Jews denied, then ironically killed the prince of life. Killed the prince of life. But God has raised him up, Peter says. He is still the issue you must deal with. It's true for us too. Walter Wink once said, Killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on its head. You can't duck Jesus. He won't go away. You can't even kill him. He won't back off. He's on you like white on rice. He loves his love for you, keeps him coming, hoping you'll repent. And then verse 16, Peter says, in his name, through faith in his name, the powerful name of Jesus has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. 
Peter doesn't even take credit for the faith that he exercised. He says that faith which came from Jesus, it was the gift of faith. I believe spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. There Paul is listing various spiritual gifts when he writes to another wonder-working faith. Hey, when you need a miracle, don't just pray for the miracle. Pray for the faith to receive the miracle. God will give that to you as well. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. You know, a mustard seed is first planted in the soil. And then it takes root, and it begins to sprout. And likewise, the gift of faith is what we need. It's an implanted faith. The Holy Spirit sows it in the soil of our heart so that with it we can then move mountains. This is strong faith. It's God's faith in us. It's a faith that's dead to doubts and dumb to discouragements and blind to impossibilities. To do great things for God, pray for his implanted faith, the spiritual gift of faith. Peter says, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Peter's showing mercy now on the Jews. He's showing pity on them. He says that their rejection of Jesus wasn't simply willfulness. It was the result of their ignorance. And he's giving the Jewish leaders here a second chance. Notice this. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And now his invitation. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And notice, unlike chapter 2, verse 38, this time the invitation has no mention of baptism. If baptism is essential for salvation, Peter surely would have made mention of it here, but he doesn't. His emphasis here, as in chapter 2, is to repent. You know, repentance is more than remorse, more than regret, more than sorry that I got caught. Repentance is the willingness to change. Now, it's not the power to change. We lack that power. That's why we need Jesus. But repentance is me providing God the willingness to change. Lord, I want to change. I can't do it myself. I need your help. But Lord, I'm willing. This is what true repentance is. And I love God's response to our repentance. It's threefold. Notice he converts. Peter says, repent therefore and be converted. He turns us around. When we're willing to change, he gives us new drives and new desires. Then he blots out our sin. The Spirit's like bounty paper towels. The quicker picker-upper. He soaks up the very deepest and the most sinful stains. And third, he sends times of refreshing. He converts us, he blots out our sin, and then he sends times of refreshing. The Spirit of God is like the first cool fall day after that sweltering summer. Open the windows, the crisp air is so rejuvenating. The Spirit of God puts a smile on our face and a bounce in our step. Now possibilities are in the air. This is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20, And that he may send Jesus Christ 
who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now you need to see this. Whenever I give an invitation for someone to come to Christ, I track with Peter up until this point, up until verse 20. I tell people to repent and be converted. Your sins will be blotted out. Refreshment will come. I repeat that in my invitation. But I would never ever say repent and Jesus will return to restore all that sin is destroyed, the restoration of all things. And yet that is exactly what Peter here promises. His terminology, the times of restoration of all things, is an idiom for the kingdom age. It's a future time when Jesus will come and reign over all the earth. Notice this. Peter on this day is saying to Israel, if you get saved... All God's promises will be fulfilled right now. Understand, in the days of the Babylonian exile, God promised Israel a new covenant through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah, through Joel. Three R's he promised them. First, that he would regather the Jews to their land. Second, that he would regenerate their evil hearts. And third, that he would restore to them the kingdom. At this point in their history, they had been regathered. And through Jesus' regeneration, that is the new birth, was now possible. And the third promise was the restoration of a physical kingdom. Apparently, if Israel had repented and believed, that would have been what happened next. The end time scenarios would have been activated. It's provocative, but I believe that Peter seems to be implying if Israel in mass had trusted in Jesus at Pentecost, the church would have been raptured at the end of Acts chapter 3. The world plunged into great tribulation, and according to Daniel's prophecies, seven years later, Jesus would have returned. In fact, historians confirm that in 40 AD, about seven years later, maybe less, the evil Roman emperor Caligula dispatched a legion of soldiers to Palestine along with the statue of his likeness. Their orders were to erect this statue in the temple's holy of holies and require the Jews to worship the emperor. A key event in Daniel chapter 9's vision of the end times will be the Antichrist, this future Roman leader, his desecration of the temple that he'll set up an image in a rebuilt temple and he'll force the world to worship him by giving them a mark, 666. You know, the, you know the passage in Revelation. Well, could that have happened in 40 AD? I believe it could have. I believe that if the Jews had accepted Peter's offer of salvation, God had already set in motion the final prophecies. As it turns out, the Jewish leadership rejected the gospel. And Caligula was assassinated before his statue arrived in Caesarea. It was returned to Rome along with the soldiers. When Israel's leaders rejected Peter's invitation, God put these end-time prophecies on pause. 
and he began reaching out to the Gentiles, to you and me. And this is where we're at today on God's timetable. This is where we've been ever since. We're in a holding pattern, waiting on the last of the Gentiles to be saved. This also explains Peter's quote from Joel chapter 2, back on the day on Pentecost. In his mind, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was combined with these end-time judgments. This is why he spoke of wonders in heaven, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. It all would have happened at this time had the Jewish nation believed, but they didn't. And today, God's Spirit is reaching out to Gentiles. But one day, the invitation of Peter will be repeated to the Jews. This time, they'll trust in Jesus as their Messiah. All Israel will be saved, and God will release his finger off the pause button, and the end times prophecies will be fulfilled. Verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, and here he quotes from Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things. Whatever he says to you, this prophet like Moses was Jesus. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Peter is telling his first century audience that all the prophecies previously had been focused on this moment in history. The gospel is to the Jew first. Now, what will the Jew do? And chapter 4 reveals their tragic response. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now realize, while Jesus was on earth, his primary opposition came from the Pharisees. They didn't like his application of the law and his disregard for their traditions. But the early church preached Jesus' resurrection So they were opposed by a sect of Jews known as the Sadducees. These rabbis were anti-supernatural. They rejected the notion of miracles in the afterlife, and thus they opposed any talk of a literal, physical resurrection. And now it's time for a joke. That's why they were sad, you see. Well, these angry Jews, they laid hands on them, that is, on Peter and John. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Wow. The church's leaders are getting arrested, but the numbers are growing. People are converting. Notice the growth rate of the early church in a matter of days church went from 120 in the upper room to 3,000 at Pentecost to 5,000 men here 
And notice it just mentions men. It doesn't include the women and children. could have been a total of 15,000 when you add in the wives and the children. The Jewish people were converted, but their leaders were obstinate. For we're told in verse 5, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Annas was the patriarch of a powerful Jewish family. You remember, Jesus had been tried before Annas and his son Caiaphas. In fact, five of Annas's sons were high priests at one time or another. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Deuteronomy 13 warns that a false prophet with demonic powers can work miracles to draw people away from Yahweh, the one true God. And thus, it was the job of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, to ask in whose name this miracle was performed. Here they do that. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and notice that happens to him again now. He's filled with the Holy Spirit again. Said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, speaking to the leadership, the hierarchy, the establishment of Judaism, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And again, you got to admire Peter's boldness. Here he assigns guilt, whom you crucified. This is what the filling of the Holy Spirit brings to a Christian, courage to speak the truth. But who they crucified, God raised up. And it is that Jesus who has given this lame man back his ability to walk. Verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone. He gives the prophetic announcement of their rejection of Jesus. Peter quotes a familiar psalm, Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus was the stone rejected by the architects, the leaders of Judaism, and yet he will become the foundation stone of the church. He says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. Exclusive? Yes, pretty exclusive. No other name that a person can be saved but the name of Jesus. Exclusive, yes. Ambiguous, no. Without any hesitation. You know, without any hesitance, Peter makes it crystal clear. Without Jesus, a person is lost and damned forever. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Annas' sons, they studied theology in these elite yeshivas. But Peter and John, they were blue-collar fishermen. This was the Harvard scholars versus the high school dropouts. Yet the disciples were the ones who spoke with clarity 
and authority. And these elites were stunned. How can this be? Well, then they realized that they had been with Jesus. And this is the key, friends. A mastery of the original languages and a proficiency in theology and knowledge of ancient history, I suppose it all has a value. But it pales in comparison to spending time with Jesus. That's what we need. We need men who've been with Jesus. I'm sure you know the meaning of Ph.D., piled high and deep. That's what a theological education is worth if you haven't been with Jesus. Spending time in the halls of higher learning is not nearly as important as spending time at the feet of Jesus. What Peter and John possessed made what they lacked irrelevant. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. I mean, the lame man himself is standing there with Peter and John. He's wiggling his toes. He's probably bouncing around doing a jig. He's on irrefutable evidence. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? Believing them would have been an option. But that wasn't what they considered. For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And at this point, the leaders of Judaism have rejected the gospel and have rejected Jesus Christ. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter says, we've got no choice. We have been commanded by God to add speech to our faith. And you've been commanded by God to do the same. Let me ask you, what goes through your mind when the world tries to intimidate you into silence? Well, this could cost me my job. This might hurt my popularity. Well, I better not push the issue. None of that should matter to us. Is it ever right for us to listen to man more than to God? How can we be silent when God has commanded us to speak? And then verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. They returned back to the upper room. It was serving as their headquarters. And so when they, the other disciples, heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said. And pay attention to what they do when they're threatened. Do they protest? Do they launch a boycott? Do they call a lawyer and file a lawsuit? No. They pray. This is their response to the threats. They pray. The church combated opposition with prayer. And here's what they prayed. Lord, you are God. 
who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. First, they get their eyes on God. Notice their starting point. It it isn't their fears. It isn't their enemy. It's their God. God made all things. God knows all things. God can do all things. C.S. Lewis once said, the first prayer of all prayers is, may it be the real God to whom I pray, and may may it be the real me who prays. The church reminded itself that their God is sovereign over every situation, that there's nothing that he can't do. We need to remind ourselves of the same. And then they turned to his word. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, and they quote here Psalm 2, why did the, he, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. In other words, God had foreseen how the rulers would gang up on Jesus at this time. The Lord wasn't caught off guard by these things. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. On that fateful night before Jesus was crucified, Herod and Pilate and the jealous Jews thought they were in charge, but they were all just puppets on a string. They were fulfilling God's purposes. God has been and now is still calling the shots. And so with that background, those reminders, they pray. Verse 29, now, Lord, look on their threats And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice they pray for boldness in their speaking and in God's doing. And this is how people don't usually pray, especially when they face persecution. This is not how most Christians pray. Most Christians ask God to take away the persecution or shelter them from the persecution. Some folks even ask for wisdom to appease the authorities. But that's not how this church prays. Winston Churchill once said, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. Rather than pray for safety or for appeasement, this church prays for boldness and for miracles. Lord, look on their threats and make us a greater threat by giving us power to speak, to speak your word. Rather than lay low, these men want to rise up. This should be our attitude. The old Puritan preacher Phillips Brooks said, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. And then in verse 31, God answers their prayer emphatically. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. The room shook. The walls wobbled. The floor did a wave. The disciples caught another gust of the Holy Spirit. And again, were filled to overflowing. And it resulted in a new desire to speak boldly. And remember, 
These are many of the same folk who were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, two chapters later, they're being filled again. R.A. Torrey once said, we need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. I'm sometimes asked, have you received the second blessing? Well, yes, and the third and the fourth and the fifth and a hundreds besides. And I'm looking for a new blessing today. So am I. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a point-in-time experience. But friends, it's not a one-time experience. There are multiple feelings across our lives. And this is why Christians need to be continually seeking the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity to pray for this power. But beware. If you stand in a moment and are prayed for to receive this power. You need to beware. This is going to put you in the crosshairs. You'll become a threat that they'll try to silence. And yet if you ask, God will fill you with a power and a boldness and a love that will win victories for him. If you want to be filled with his Holy Spirit, I want you to stand for prayer this morning. I want you to stand right now to receive this power. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. Let's all pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for those that are standing. Thank you, Lord, for their lives and for their sphere of influence. Lord, wherever they go, in their home or at work or at school or at the office Wherever they might be, Lord, Lord, they are in a position to make a difference for you, to shed your love and to spread your love and to spread your truth. And Lord, we know so much, and yet we speak so little. And Lord, we recognize, as Peter did, of our own failures and our own weaknesses. Lord, so many times we've been there by the campfire, And we've 